Thank you very much. Um, I've been answering questions for the last five years since my novel came out um, on tour and at speaking engagements, and I've heard just about every question that I imagined I would hear. Um, some, you know, ordinary questions that I expected to hear, others not so, uh, including one where somebody asked me whether I wanted, would prefer to be an um, astronaut or a janitor. Um, <laughs> To which I said astronaut because I've already done the janitor thing. So, um, but you know, two of the most common questions I get asked are: one is uh, why did you choose to write? Um, and I no, don't have a good answer for that because I've yet to meet a writer who chose to write. Um, I think for most writers, the act of writing comes as a compulsion. Uh, which is very, very difficult to resist. And I personally have had no control over my urge to write than I do over my bone marrow to produce platelets and red cells. Um, and the second question is, did you uh, want to be a writer when you were a kid? Um, when I was a kid, actually, what I wanted to be was, was Clint Eastwood. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd seen the guy wearing that cool poncho and that cigar and that hat and uh, that's what I wanted to be. Uh, in fact, I pretty much, I think I still want to be Clint. Um, so I uh, went to my dad and I said, um, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, I want to be just like Clint Eastwood. So can you please take me to Iran so I can meet this amazing Iranian actor, Clint Eastwood. And to which my father sat me down and said, son, um, Clint may be speaking Farsi on the screen, but there's this thing called voice dubbing. So. I hate to break it to you. Um, so then um, I moved on and I um, told my parents over time that I wanted to be an astronaut and then I wanted to be a karate expert guy. And um, you know, if I'd heard yesterday's talk then, I would have told them I want to be a mayor. Um, <laughs> but um, interestingly, I never told them what I eventually became, which was a doctor and a writer. Um, probably so as not to raise false hopes in the former and not to cause uh, undue sleeplessness in, this, in the latter. Um, this was, you know, in the, um, in the 1970s, uh, a time of peace and anonymity in Afghanistan where, frankly, a lot of people actually had a hard time, certainly nobody in this group, but a lot of people had a hard time placing Afghanistan on a map, and I'll never forget the first time in Europe when somebody asked me where I was from, and I told them, and they looked, gave me this blank look, and they had no idea where it was. Um, and that time, my life was quite different from the life of a subsequent generation of Afghan children who have been born amid conflict. Um, growing up in Kabul in the 70s, I never heard a gunshot. Um, although they were tanks, uh, the military barracks, they never moved, and they just collected dust. Um, you know, in those days, kids could not, uh, as they can do now, um, assemble a Kalashnikov by the time you get to 10 Mississippi. Um, and our, our textbooks did not include things like, um, and I was in Kabul uh, and I saw these math textbooks that people had used in the, in the early 90s and in the 80s, and, and the questions went something like, um, you know, if you have 20 Mujahid and you have 16 grenades, how many grenades per Mujahid do you get? It was a very different, different time and I feel very lucky to have experienced Afghanistan at, at that time. Um, so it's very, very lucky. Um, I became even luckier when my father who worked for the foreign ministry 
came home one day and told us that he'd been assigned a post in Paris, that we were gonna move to Paris for a while. Um, that was lucky in and of itself. It turned out to be uh, extremely lucky because when we went to Paris, and it was supposed to be a four-year assignment, uh, we were gonna be there from 1976 to 1980, and then we were gonna come back. So we left everything behind, all of our belongings, just packed some clothes, and the family moved to Paris. But of course, while we were in France, um, Afghanistan unraveled. First with a very vicious and bloody coup in April of 1978 uh, that saw the uh, murder of uh, the Afghan president, Dawood Khan, at the royal palace, the presidential palace, and some 20 members of his family. Um, it was a very difficult time for my family because uh, you feel helpless uh, being abroad and uh, getting news of what's going on back home and hearing stories of friends uh, and family members who've been imprisoned, who've been killed, or in some ways, infinitely worse, uh, have gone missing and nobody knows their fate. Um, so the, the prospects of returning home suddenly looked uh, grim. They all but evaporated, I guess, in December of 1979 when um, I was at home with my folks watching television and we had the news break that the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. And I remember seeing the pictures of those tanks rolling in and those Soviet soldiers move, moving in and I saw my parents exchange a look. And at that moment I knew that, that we weren't gonna return uh, home. And in fact, to this day, uh, none of the uh, then nine people in my family have gone back to Afghanistan with the, uh, with the exception of myself. So unbeknownst to us, my dad um, went about uh, getting political asylum for the family. Um, and it was a time of kind of, felt a little bit like living in a um, John le Carré novel where my dad would, uh, when we would go anywhere, he would make a stop and then he would go to the car, turn it on, and then he would say, okay, you guys can come now. Um, but he, he applied for asylum and, um, and we packed our bags and moved to the US uh, in the fall of 1980 in uh, San Jose, where there was already kind of the beginning and the seed of a, of a burgeoning um, Afghan community in those, in those early years. Um, when we arrived to the US, uh, my father said we have to do two things. Um, first is that we have to get a proper American family car. Um, so he went about uh, looking for one, and one day he drove home in a 1970 Dot Charger which was his notion of a proper uh, American family car. Uh, the Dot Charger, for those of you who don't know, is the mother of all hot rods. Uh, it's every teenage boy's wet dream. Um, uh, so he drove home in this thing, and I'll never forget um, when he uh, packed all nine of us in the Charger, and as we were going through the neighborhood, and the windows were rattling, and everybody in the garage stopped what they were doing, and they watched this family of Afghan refugees drive down the road. And then he took us to the Capitol Expressway drive-ins and we watched Superman 2. Um, the second thing he said we have to do is hang a picture of Ronald Reagan in our home. Um, because um, this we, we, got, we got to the States just before the election of um, my father's great hero, President Reagan. And uh, the reason for that was because um, Mr. Reagan had uh, gone on television and called the Soviets the evil empire and he said he would do anything it would take to defeat the Soviet Empire, and the West was putting out a call to uh, Muslim brothers around the world to come and fight in Afghanistan. And so my father put a picture of Ronald Reagan in his, uh, in his home, and I think Mr. Reagan made 
Republicans out of a lot of Afghans with those words. Uh, and certainly my father has been a devout Republican um, since those days. Um, ironically, we were living in a very blue-collar neighborhood and we're all welfare, as my father was driving around the Dodge Charger with the Reagan Bush sticker on it. Um, so, <laughs> um, my parents set about uh, getting jobs, and my dad um, uh, became a, uh, I tried to sell insurance, and he worked on an assembly line, and then eventually he became a driving instructor, um, and he had this van where he would, uh, was fit with all these gadgets and lifts and everything. It was for the physically challenged, and so he would teach them how to drive up and down the streets of San Francisco. Uh, my mom became a, um, um, was a waitress at Denny's for a while. She had been the vice principal of a very, a very large high school for girls in Kabul, but she waited tables at Denny's for a while, and we would go there at 11 o'clock at night, sit in her sections, and live these big tips for her. Um, and eventually, uh, she went to beauty school and learned how to cut hair and eventually became a um, beautician. And she worked in a small hole-in-the-wall salon in East San Jose for a better part of 20 years until she retired a couple of years ago. And in that time, while they were doing this, their message to us was that, okay, now we're doing this stuff and this is fine, but you have to make something yourself. And you have to go to school, you have to get an education, and you have to make us proud. And I was the firstborn, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a firstborn son, uh, and I uh, must have felt a weight of responsibility and expectation of what uh, the sacrifice that my parents were doing, and so I decided to go to medical school. The thought of going becoming a doctor never crossed my mind. Uh, it seemed outlandish that I would become a doctor, largely because the only words in, uh, that would become a writer, largely because the only words in English that I knew were hello, goodbye, thank you, and for some obscure reason, the word gluttony. Um, <laughs> At any rate, I gave uh, medicine my 20s. I became a physician, and uh, eventually, in the spring of uh, 1999, saw a television report uh, about the Taliban banning the sport of kite flying. That led to a short story, which I wrote pretty much on the spot, which I thought was going to be about kites. It ended up being about betrayal and guilt and friendship and, and Afghanistan. And eventually, that story was discovered by my wife in the spring of um, in early 2001, and um, I went back to it and decided there was a novel in it, and I would use it to write, up, uh, write my first novel, which of course became um, The Kite Runner. During the writing of the novel, September 11th happened. I abandoned the novel for about three months and had uh, pretty much decided that I was done with it until my wife talked some sense into me and said, your book um, in some way will help change people's perspectives about Afghanistan, so you should, you should write it. And I did, and I'm really glad uh, that I listened to her. Um, I'm running out of time. I feel compelled to give you three pieces of advice. I'm not good at giving advice, but first I'll echo George Lucas from yesterday. Find joy in your life um, and do what you and, and, and only you want to do. Um, the best and the brightest of you will end up doing something that somebody else wants you to do. I guarantee you, don't do it. Uh, secondly, uh, make sure you get very lucky. And uh, number three, um, <laughs> be grateful. Be very grateful for what you have. My dream is that one day I will, um, I will come here and that there will be another Afghan writer at this podium. Um, there are so many writers in Afghanistan who've been, uh, who are undoubtedly far more eloquent and um, visionary than I am, but their moment and their opportunity has been stolen by them by, through war and poverty and, and uh, suffering of various sorts. So my dream is that one day I will come and I will see one of them at this podium speak. And if it happens to be a woman, the most beleaguered member of that beleaguered nation, I will be, that would make me that much more proud. 
Thank you very much.